In Revelation 6, we're looking at all the seals that were on this scroll that was held in the right hand of God the Father, waiting on the right moment so that the person who was qualified to open the scroll would open it. And so in chapter 5, we recognize who that person is that's qualified based on all the things we talked about. Certainly we know that that's Jesus who could take the scroll from the Father and begin to open it. Well, to open it, these seals had to be broken. We learned from Jeremiah 32 what was probably written on the scroll, which was a plan of redemption, a plan to complete a work of God. It helps us understand why it had to be Jesus who could break these seals. But one of the things that the premise of this study from the beginning, if this is a revelation of God, and we believe with all our hearts that it is, that the blessing shouldn't just come in the fact that we know what's going to happen someday because revelation is designed to create an encounter with God right now. Some of the things that I've shared with you all recently that I've learned, things that had always been there, you remember revelation is something that has always been true. It has just been covered. Revelation is the uncovering of something that has always been there. So when, you, when I learn some of these things and they just kind of blow me away, I, those are revelations that are designed to create something between God and me right now, not just future blessings. So when I started studying that way, some of the things about Revelation had to change pretty drastically. This is kind of one of the biggest, as much as we've already studied, when you recognize that the typical teaching of these seals is that they represent events that have to occur in the future. Well, I've looked at those, and I read some of that to y'all last week. I looked in commentaries, and I looked all over the place, and in different people's opinions about what these seals are, and it was all over the board. There is nothing in that that you can land on that says, oh, now I have it. And I think that's why I had just avoided Revelation for so long, is because I hated that confusion, the lack of clarity that this is what this is actually saying. So as I began to study, saying, God, what do you want us to know about this right now, the entire scope of the study changed. Because what I recognize, especially in chapter 6, that the perspective of what was being written here had to change almost 180 degrees. First thing, recognizing that these may not represent events at all. That they're not representing a sequence of things that's going to occur. Again, I've read those and I just can't get attached to it. What I did recognize is that each of these seals represents a principle that has to be in our life for us to step into the redemptive work of God. Each one of these being broken, recognizing that it was the seal that kept the redemptive plan from opening. So the seal was not a positive thing. It was something that had to be dealt with, had to be accomplished, so that the full redemption could be understood. So these seals are principles relayed in visions of things that have to happen in us so that we can become the redemptive work of God. So I guarantee it was a very different look after I began to look at it that way. If each one of them, any time, this is kind of the concept, when for any believer, we choose to let God rule, not just save us. Something has to happen in the hearts of people to allow the ruler to rule. Something has to happen in us to recognize the sovereignty of the one who rules over us. These seals are what changes in us, things that occur within us. So when we came to the white horse and the rider, 
Again, I heard all kinds of things about Antichrist. That was the number one thing, was that this is the Antichrist. Well, I truly struggle with God being the author of this, that he would in chapter 19 call this guy on the white horse Jesus, and we know that it is, why he would change the symbolism within the same vision. I wouldn't do that. So why can't I just accept that this rider on this white horse is wearing this crown that has this bow in his hand, why can't I just begin by acknowledging that that's Jesus? And by that appearance, what he's trying to tell us is that that bow, and, it, and I use the illustration of Paul on the road to Damascus, and every one of these things up to this point have begun with come and see. And David was sharing with me a while ago that when he was looking at the difference between the name Paul and Saul, it's not just one Greek and one Hebrew. That's what I thought that wasn't the case. But the word Saul, David means look, see. So when Jesus is speaking to Saul on the road to Damascus, and he says, Saul, Saul, with that name meaning to see, he was saying, see, you've got to look right here. And then the name Paul means to cease, cease or come to an end. He had to come to the end of who he was so that he could be what he was. So these all begin with the encouragement to come and see. Come and be illuminated. Come and let me show you. What is that rider on the white horse doing with that bow? What happened in the moment with Saul? He was immediately addressed with the truth. Why do you persecute me? That had to come as an arrow to this religious man. It had to come as a sharp truth that had the ability to do something in him, to cause something to happen in him. So that first rider is what happens in us, is that, that change that has to occur in us, that will bring us to purity, that will bring us to holiness. That we have to be willing at all times to let the truth pierce that which is not supposed to be there, to destroy that which is not supposed to be there, so that we will be pure before God, holy before God. And you will not step into the redemptive plan until your heart comes there. Until you're willing to let God point out those things in your story that are not supposed to be there and to be dealt with. You will not step into the redemptive plan of God if you stand and defend those wrong places within your own heart. And I want to tell you, we're very, very good at defending those wrong places. Again, it's what we talked about on Sunday morning. The guy at the pool, Jesus says, do you want to be made whole? He, he tells him his story. Well, I've been this way, this, I can't get to the pool, somebody always gets in front of me. It's not what Jesus asked. Jesus says, do you want to be made whole? I mean, this guy's greatest problem wasn't the infirmity that he had suffered for 38 years. One of the great problems that he had was his own story. Because he used it all the time to explain his situation. Well, I want to tell you, when we tell the same story, justifying what our life is like, we're doing exactly the same thing. I can tell you different things about my life. And some of them very, very unpleasant. Some of the things you look back in your life and you realize they're there. Or I can keep telling that and I can keep peddling that saying this is why I am the way that I am. At some point, i got to find a new story. I can't keep telling that old story to justify who I am. That's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a willingness to find within our own heart the ability to let God reveal those things about us so that we can live in, in, in holiness before him. Well, following that white horse was a red one. This was an unusual word. Because I told you last week that that word red is used only two times in the Bible, and both of those are in Revelation. So when you 
read other places about the red blood or something, you, that's not this word. This word is a fiery red. So it pictures God coming as fiery judgment. In the summary of that second one, it says it was given upon him thereupon to take peace from the earth. And we read the scriptures where Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. What would that sword do? We talked about that extensively. Because we talked about this wasn't the long sword that they used in battle. This was a short one. It was the sword of Hebrews 4.12. That, you know, Shorty read that scripture to us toward the end of us being here together. It's that sword that's sharper than any two-edged sword. Able to divide soul and spirit. Able to divide away the intents of our heart. You know, it's a very full scripture. That's the sword that this rider is carrying. But what is he telling us about ourselves? He's saying, unless you're willing to be carved away from the world, unless you're le- willing to let that sword cut you out, and that's not going to be a peaceful feeling with us. As a matter of fact, it's going to take peace so that that peace can be found somewhere else. You know, we read, I think it's in Romans, where it, the promise is made that God will shake everything he's created. If he created it, he will shake it. To cause us to trust an unshakable kingdom. But the process of sanctification, we know justification is the moment that we're saved. Sanctification is the long process. I mean, the best illustration I can give is when you take your child across the street when they're very little, and you fill out a piece of paper, then all of a sudden, upon that signature, upon that moment, they now have standing in that school as a student. They now have a title, they're a student. But we also know for the next 14 years or so, they're going to exist over there as a student with the responsibility of them growing in who they are. When we are justified and we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we were enrolled and we have standing before God as a son or a child of God. But we also realize that that's not the end of the story. We have this long process of being a child of God. And in that process... He has to carve us out, just like we do over at the school. We, we, what are we determined to do? To establish right thinking and, and replace wrong thinking. To tell them the truth so that they'll recognize when it's a lie. That's what we do, recognize right versus those things that are wrong. So what happens in our life, we, and again, we will not step into the redemptive plan of God for us if we're not willing to live separated from the world. You wonder why we're living in the situation we are within the Christian world. It's because we fail to recognize that understanding and stepping fully into what God intends for us requires that by the Holy Spirit, by that sword that is being carried here, that he carves us out and sanctifies us, separates us, calls us out from the world. I want to tell you, if you take that sword at me and cuts it away, cut away something, that's not going to feel like a peaceful moment. That's what happens, and he's establishing that. For the redemptive plan to be completely unrolled, that second seal has to be broken. And we have to become people who are willing to be sanctified, cut out, set apart from the rest of the world. Okay, we're moving now to the black horse. This is Revelation 6, verses 5 and 6. And when it opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see, come and be illuminated. And I beheld and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt or damage not the oil and the wine. 
Well, you can turn that into any kind of symbolism you want. I guarantee you, when you st- I started reading what is typically said about this and all the, in the event that this is going to picture, I mean, it went from famine across the world, destruction. I mean, it was just awful. You get that word black in there as a part of an event, and it means something that is catastrophic. And I don't tell you, it's not at all. I don't believe what this is trying to tell us. Again, I give you all the, the room in the world to disagree with me on this. But when I begin to look at it, and it's like, okay, what are the scales? So this, this balance that is being held, what is it all about? And the symbolism in this was terribly hard. So this red horse that we just had is now replaced by this black horse. The third principle for us to step into this redemptive work is symbolized by this black horse, and it speaks to the dark times in our lives. Anybody ever had any? Yeah. When I began to look at this, this is a strange concept, and I understand that you've got to turn your thinking around a little bit. But it's, it's in the dark times of our life that God brings and we find balance. I wrote one of those relevant truths here in this. I'm just going to read it to you. When we walk in the dark, even in a familiar home, we balance and use all of our senses to monitor and to measure where we are in relationship to things that we cannot see. If you're walking through a house, especially one that you don't know well, and all the lights are off, and it's just dark. You know, I can remember when I was a kid, we'd go deer hunting down in central Texas, and we stayed in this old house. And if you stepped out on the front porch, you absolutely could not see the hand in front of your face. I mean, it was unbelievable how dark it was. But it's amazing how in that darkness... In the light, I just walk. In the dark, everything is measured. You're feeling, you're using every sense you have to find some sense of perspective so that you'll know that's where this chair is, that's where this tree is, whatever it is that's going on that's around us. You won't do that in the light. You don't have it all the same perspective. So when God created us, says there was evening and there was morning one day. So out of the darkness, God brought forth light. He included the darkness in the formation of the day. In God's day, there's only light. But for us, there is still darkness. There's no darkness in him. We, hear, we read that scripture. There's no shadow of turning in him. There's no darkness in him. But we still walk in darkness. We all do. We all still live in dark times. What do those dark times do? What's the value of them? What happens coming out of them? We recognize, I could not know what I know now. I could not be illuminated now, know what I know now, had I not walked in that dark place. Because we discovered something in the darkness we could not find in the light. But every time we're in the darkness, it is doing what happened originally. Out of that darkness, we're designed to find and to understand and see and witness the light. Always taking us from darkness to light. It's what happened in the first place, and it has never changed. So another one of those relevant truths that I wrote, because it's the way it hit me. Out of the darkness, he brings light. Joy, we read about joy comes in the morning. Out of the darkness, we emerge in such a way that we recognize that the darkness was required. We're changed by it. We're left seeking from it. The best illustration I can give you is I believe for Jesus, the wilderness, that those days had to be a dark time. In his humanity, it had to be a dark time. He was facing not only the things that we read easily, he was facing wild animals. Awful circumstances. He had been led there by the Holy Spirit. We understand, why did he have to go? 
Because he had just received the Holy Spirit at his baptism. He had just received the adoption of his father when his father said, this is my beloved son. He had received the authority by the Holy Spirit. He had been given access to the fullness of heaven. What happened in the wilderness? He realized that those three things that he had been given all were true. They had all now been tested. They had all been proven. He could eat from the fullness of heaven. He could speak from the authority that had been given to him. He could stand as the Son of God and address Satan as the Son of God. All three things that he had received had to be tested in this dark time so that when he emerged on the other side, he would know that it was all true. Well, you and I walk through those things, those dark times, so that we too can recognize that without that darkness, without what I learned in there, what gave me perspective, again, it's been many years ago now, but when I found myself in that deep, dark depression, awful, couldn't do anything really but sleep, it went on for several months, and shared with you, went in and how it came out of that, but the very next week when I went back to work, because I was able to go right back to work when it was over, and this young man walked into my office and, and I, I looked at him and said, you thought about killing yourself this morning. He said, how did you know that? I said, because I've just seen those eyes from the other side. I could not have known that. I could suddenly understand, had more compassion on people who were addicted to things and struggling with things because you want to escape so badly. I had a perspective that I could not have had had I not walked through those few months. So grateful that I haven't been back there. But I mean, that depression was awful. Couldn't work, couldn't go to work. And I'm just so grateful I had some very understanding people around me who had actually walked through. And the person who made the most difference was Rip Lassiter. He was a superintendent here, for those of you who didn't know him. But he came to the house, and I wasn't where I could even visit with him. But he visited with Jan. And he told her a story about one morning, early in the morning, when, when Julia had left for Tennessee to go see her parents. And not a very pleasant story, but he said, I went to the bathroom, and he said, I was sitting there. And this depression hit me. He said, I, I just kind of drug myself back to bed. But when you looked at him, now he's fine. Because the number one thing that was playing in my head was this is hopeless. You can't find hope in the middle of that darkness. But when Rip came and he told me this story, he said, that's it. That's exactly what happened to me. He could describe it in terms that I knew he knew. And I look at him now and he's fine. I found hope in that. I gained perspective in that. Well, I want to tell you, you know, there's things that happen in the dark times it can't happen anywhere else. We gain an understanding of ourselves. We gain an understanding of God. It's that same positioning like we're walking in the dark. I guarantee you, when you're walking in that dark, your eyes are searching for one thing. I want some kind of light. And you find the least amount, and your eyes are drawn to it. It's illuminating something. It's telling you something. So by our senses, darkness brings a level of processing that allows us to sift or sort quickly those things that give us our bearings. I want you to, as I say these things, do your best to take that into a spiritual reality. Let me read that again. By our senses, those things that God gave us, darkness brings a level of processing. Again, I'm just walking when I can see. When I can't, I have to process everything. I have to search everything, measure everything, make sure I don't stumble. I'm processing in a very different way. Our eyes are always seeking for that light. Especially when the darkness is creating doubt, you're absolutely searching for light. So we see this sifting process, this sorting process that we do very quickly. We sit in the life of Peter. His life had to be sifted. There had to be, you know, what happens when you sift? 
It's not a word we use much anymore. Maybe those who bike a lot still use it. We used to get a we used to get an old piece of screen, put it over a bucket, and we'd put dirt on there and we'd rub it so that the dirt in the bottom would be real fine. What stayed on top? Clods, the rocks, the hard things, and we just chunked them and we'd get some more on there. We'd rub it and so that the the fine stuff would go through. Well, I want to tell you, our lives have to be sifted. It happens in this process. You know, you think about Peter, his correction by Jesus as he refused to let Jesus wash his feet. What was happening in that moment? Jesus was dealing something in Peter's life that had to go away. If it didn't go away, Peter wasn't going to be of much use. It had to be removed. And that's what was happening. It was this sifting process. His denying Jesus and then seeing the forgiveness from the man he just denied. What was happening? That God was dealing. He was sifting something out of Peter that had to be dealt with. When he says, I'll die for you, Jesus says, you'll deny me three times, and he actually does it. His decision to go fishing when he was told to wait, all of those things had to be dealt with because they represented something in Peter that could not remain there. Well, recognize in us, please, that that sifting process is doing the same thing. God's dealing with stuff that he knows we're not going to move far into the redemptive work of God, into the fullness of what he wants to, until this stuff is gone. That's what this is telling us. Again, the lumps in the sifting process are the stuff that don't belong. They're taken away through the sifting. The offering of God was always described as fine flour. It wasn't coarse. It was always fine flour. It had been sifted. I wrote down here, balance comes with these dark times. In Jesus, we see the very balanced life. His gentleness and his compassion never was perceived as weakness. If you're not balanced, that won't be true. It'll be seen as weakness. His love never became lust. That's balance. His firmness never became arrogance. And his peacefulness never became indifference. All because in him was this balance. He was accused a lot, but it was never found to be true in him. So Christ has come to be our light, to shine. He's our life, our sufficiency, our truth, our wisdom, and our righteousness. So this is that process of sanctification, him changing us slowly over a long period of time. Elaine started this in me several years ago. She was sitting right back there, right behind where Randy Nichols is now, on a Sunday night, and she got up and left. And for a preacher, when somebody gets up and leaves, it doesn't bother me much anymore. It's like, oh, they've had enough, and they finally gave up, and they're going home. But she got up and left. And it, you know, it, it raises this question, and she came back. The next day, and she came into my office or sometime that week, and she said, I want to tell you what happened. She said, you said something. It's very random. And she said it brought back something, an issue that I'd had with a family member, and I had to step out and deal with it. And when she said that, I realized that part of the Christian life is God plowing new soil, and under it is something ugly that has been in our story for a long time. And he only plows it up when he knows you're ready to deal with it. He won't turn it up to hurt you. He'll only turn it up so that you'll see what's there and know how to get rid of it so that it's not part of your story anymore. That's what I realize that. That's going to happen for the rest of our lives. That process is never going to change. He's going to reveal things. Big ones, small ones, some seem much more important than others. But he's not going to do that until you know how to take that old hurt, hand it back to him, and it be gone forever. My dumb illustration is right here. In that little dark spot, there's a piece of a chisel right in there. I hit a chisel, it, the corner of it broke off, and it was in there. And I didn't go to the doctor or anything, so it's just in there. But it doesn't hurt. 
But what would I do the minute it started hurting? I'd have to go get it taken out. That's this process with God. He knows what's in us, and he knows the potential at any time of it hurting us. And when it does, he brings it to the surface, and he takes it out. Again, this is what's being described in this particular vision. In the second part of this, this is where it really gets weird for me. He's already said, I've come to get rid of the self-adoration. I've come to get rid of all the wants and the desires that are in you that should not be there. I've come to deal with that. And then he gives us his second part. And he says, and I heard something like a voice. And I have sat with that for a while, trying to understand whose voice this was. And I have no answer. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures, saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. I thought, okay, I'm, this is easy, I'll just look up the symbolism. I looked up wheat, and there was six or seven or twelve different answers. Surely there was just one answer. Barley, same thing. Oil and wine, same thing. No scholars can agree on what this stuff means. Again, I was amazed. So I just wrote down the facts that I could tell here. Things that I did know that I didn't have to question. The denarius was about a penny, but it was also a day's wage. We get that much of a perspective. The amount of money was a day's wage. So for one day's wage, a man could feed enough, which was that quart of wheat or three quarts of barley. That was about a day's worth of food. And for one day's wages, he could buy enough to feed himself. That was what he's saying. A quart of wheat would just about feed you for a day. Or if you wanted more, you could buy three quarts of barley. But the barley was usually used to feed the animals. It was such a different quality than the wheat. But also many of the poor ate the barley as well. It wasn't as fine as wheat. You could feed three people for a day's wage if necessary if you were going to feed them barley. The oil and the wine in that day were luxury items. But it says there is enough of everything if you have the money to buy it. So this is why there's typical teaching of this as famine. It's describing a great famine that's going to come to the earth. So that's a very typical teaching of this. But it also seems plausible that this statement is made regarding something that needs to find balance. Remember he just said the rider of this horse is holding these, it says balances, but it's scales. So if he's going to say right after that, this kind of a statement is three quarts of barley for a penny, a quart of wheat for a penny, be careful that you don't damage the oil and wine. It sounds like something that needs to be measured on that scale. Or we've got just a, a mess of symbolism here. Somehow, that scale, that balance that we've talked about, has to be discovered in this statement. So when I started, again, looking at all the symbolism, and they're trying to say this is the great famine that's going to happen somewhere down in our future, I finally had to stop because the symbolism is just too extremely hard. I thought this is going to be simple. I'd go look it up and it'll make sense. And it didn't make sense at all because one of the writers was saying, well, wheat has to do with Pentecost and the barley with Passover. And, and then I read another one and they had it flipped backwards. And it's like, okay, I'm not reading anything else. I'm sitting down with this scripture. And whatever comes out of it is what the Holy Spirit's going to tell me. I'm not going to look up anything else. What's written here, this was just me and God sitting because I had read enough that I was so confused. I said, I can't do this. So this is what came out of this. Something had to be sifted. There was something here that had to be dealt with in our life if we were going to step into the redemptive plan. Just like the rest of them have. Something here has got to be sifted out so that we'll be able to step into the fullness of all that God has for us. That's where I started.
So I went back to the penny with a day's wage, and this was one of them that made sense. Because a wage is what you worked for. It wasn't a gift. It was something that, it was a wage based on your amount of effort. Your work put forth was deserving of the wage. So when he starts talking about something that was a day's wage, we recognize that it's representing self-effort or human effort. So that ought to begin to trigger something in our head. If he's trying to tell us there's something that has to disappear for us to step into the fullness of God's plan, and the first thing he brings up is something that was a day's wage and human effort, self-effort, I'm beginning to get it. Because until you and I recognize that we cannot step into that plan unless we stop all human effort, we will never experience the fullness of what God has for us. Hard for us to process in the, because of who we are in our culture. We, you know, we, we say, if you want a lot, you work hard. If you want to be successful in the basketball, it relates to how much work you do. So for this to become a paradox, the things of God are, how do you produce a lot? According to John 15, you abide in the vine. You produce by resting. So what has to go away? We've experienced this. We know this well as a church. We recognize that most of what Christianity does is they see a need and they gather the resources and they do their best to go meet it and wonder why it never turns into something as dynamic as they first thought. It's because that there's no amount of human effort that actually can meet the need that as God presents. You know, Jesus said it, and I mean, we know this to be very true. John 5, 19 says, without the Father, I can do nothing. He also says later, and, you know, I can only do what I see my Father do. I can only speak what I hear my Father speak. So what was Jesus admitting? In his humanity, I can't meet that need. I can't do that miracle. And again, it's shocking for people when I say that Jesus performed no miracles. But I want to tell you, that's the best news you and I have ever heard as Christians. If he couldn't, what does that say about us? I can't either. That's permission for me to never have, expect that a miracle will happen at my hands. That's great news. But I see the miracles that were happening around them. Acts 2.22. Write that down. Memorize it. It gives us the answer. These are the miracles that God the Father did by one who found faithful named Jesus. It was Jesus' obedience that allowed the Father to do the miracles every single time. That's good news to me. I can't do the miracles. I can certainly be obedient. And I can watch then by that obedience God the Father do supernatural things. I've had some things happen this week. I was standing in my shop Monday night with a question on my heart. It had been on my heart all day. I was getting ready for the phone counseling session last night at 6. And I knew I needed to hear from God. I needed something because in counseling, at the end of every one of them, you want the progress to be going forward. You want to recognize, well, with this particular situation, it was going backwards. I feel like we were still losing ground before we could ever start. I'm standing there, and I heard this word spoken. And I knew in that moment that what I had just heard was that man's identity. Deep inside of me, not only had I heard it, it affirmed so many things. I looked at the clock, it was 9.54. I thought, I'm going to know in the specifics of this moment. I was painting, putting primer on some cabinet doors. My mind was everywhere else. And he spoke that name and I knew. That's God. That is God telling me, he has to do it, I can't. I'm not smart enough. I'm not emotionally intuitive enough. He has to do it. So he talks about a day's wage, self-effort, human effort. So if something needs to be sifted out, or found lacking in the balance of us, it would be this. 
We have to get rid of all human effort. Hard concept for us. But don't I have to do a little? Don't I have to pray? Isn't that something that God asked me to do? Is it? How do I know how to pray? Who has to give it to me? The Holy Spirit. It has to originate in Him. Or I won't know what to pray. The simplest things, even to know what to do, no, it has to originate in Him so I can be obedient. Prayer is an act of obedience, just like everything else. Well, don't I have to be faithful? Well, yeah, that's a good point. Who had to give you the faith? He did. It originated in Him. It's not my faith, it's His. Faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. So in spite of God's teaching us this, with such specificity about, not, it even says in the Scripture, stop striving. You've got to stop striving. Even with all that teaching, most church leaders are still constantly encouraging members to apply self-effort. To common, common teaching, apply what you can do. Bring what you can bring to God. Bring your effort. Bring your time. Bring what you have. Bring it. You know, we're challenged to do more. We're challenged to try harder and to do better. We're advised to be more eager and be more involved. It's all self-effort, and God says it has to stop. You will not buy what the wheat is, symbolically. You will not get what the barley represents at all by self-effort. He's saying this is the stuff that has to be sifted. So when asked, Jesus said that the work of God consists of believing in him. This is John 6.29. They come and ask Jesus, what can we do to do the works of God? What did they want to know? They wanted a list. You give your money, you go to church, you study your Sunday school lesson, you do all those things, and if you get all this stuff done, then you too can do the works of God. And Jesus' answer, they did not like. He says, you want to do what I do, only believe. It's like, wait a minute, I want something to do. If you give me something to do, I'll check that list off, and at the end of that list, I'll be ready to go, and I'll do exactly what you're doing. And Jesus said, no, it doesn't work that way. I'm not the one doing it at all. You have to put your faith in somebody else. You have to believe. They didn't want it. The outcome of this misuse, and this is awful, but tragic, but true. The outcome of the misuse of the gifts, the talents, the goodness, the anointing that he gives us, the misuse of it by these pastors who are teaching self-effort, apply yourself, do better, get involved, all those things that we hear routinely. The sad outcome of that is people begin to measure themselves against other people. It becomes comparison. I must be a better Christian because I'm doing more. The outcome of the misuse is the measuring of one person against another when people rank themselves higher than others because of their anointing or their gifting, they are rejecting the revelation of who Jesus Christ is in the first place. What does the Christ in me look like compared to the Christ in you? Exactly the same. Exactly the same. A comparison that the ranks and sorts has to be removed for us to step into the redemptive work. I'm very grateful that God has brought illumination on this part for many within this church so that those days are largely behind us. You open that book and those who interpret the scripture in the natural realm and scoff at those who are receiving spiritual revelation are harming the oil and the wine. Those people who take the Bible and teach it from knowledge, teach it from history, and scoff at those who were able to see within it spiritual things, to apply and grow and understand spiritual things, to see the Holy Spirit in it. Those people who scoff at that, and there are many, most actually, 
they're damaging the oil and they're damaging the wine in, in Revelation. The anointing in Revelation. That's the damage that he's warning. Don't do it. Don't damage the oil and don't damage the wine. Don't scoff at the spiritual things that I'm going to bring to you that make no sense. It could not have made sense to the people around when something would happen spiritually. And you can tell by the reaction of the religious leaders. They could not believe it. It made them angry that God, the one that, that they had made practical, that they had put in the box and said, this is what the Jewish religion looks like, that that God would behave differently. And they scoffed at it. They refused it and ridiculed it. The spirit of religion will always do that. The spirit of religion will always look at spiritual things and scoff at it and say it's untrue. So again, what has to be removed from us? The self-effort, the spirit of religion that makes the self-effort valuable, it's got to be carved away from us. That's the balance we've got to find. The balance is I'm to understand obedience versus work. I have to learn to abide and rest versus to get out here and think I have to produce. That's the balance that he's talking about that has to be discovered in this balance that this rider on this black horse is holding. And when I realize this, I realize just how powerful that truth is. That unless that's cut away from us, unless that's dealt with and removed from us, sifted out, then we will not be qualified and ready to step into the fullness of what God has for us redemptively. We can't live the fullness if I'm going to hold on to the determination that I have a valuable part in this other than the recognition that I'm the vessel that got to be filled by the Spirit of God who has to produce all things. When we get it, though, the possibilities are endless. Well, I want to read this passage. I went to the simplest things on wheat and barley. If you're making notes, I put down here that wheat represents truth. Given, wheat and barley represent truth given by God. The wheat seems to be a more precious grain that would speak of internal and deep truth that he gives us. The barley seems to more represent the goodness of external truth, knowledge versus wisdom, something like that. There was a difference. So when I examine the symbolism in the simplest form, instead of trying to get the craziness out of it, it seems that wheat and barley just represents the truth of God, one internal, one external. In Joel 1, 9, I'll read this. It says, The meat offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of Jehovah. The priests, the ministers of Jehovah, have mourned. They've got huge problems in Israel during the days of Joel, the prophet. It wasn't idolatry with Joel. It was alcohol. They were drinking themselves to death. I, when Dale and I studied this, it was quite amazing because all the other minor prophets are dealing with idolatry. This is dealing with drunkenness, with alcohol. The field has been laid waste. The earth hath mourned because the grain hath been devastated and the new wine is dried up and the oil languishes. See those words? The warning about the grain, about the oil, about the wine. The husbandmen are ashamed. The vine dressers have howled over the wheat and over the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. So when you realize he's saying, this is the stuff. This is the consequence of what happens if you're going to continue to try to buy by self-effort. Those things that you can only receive from God as a gift. You can't gain them as a prize. You can get them as a gift. That's what's happening in Israel. The oil symbolizes anointing. The wine symbolizes revelation of the word of God. So what are we warned against? Here it is in a summary. We are warned against trying to earn spiritual food through intellectual pursuit and self-endeavor. All self-effort hurts the anointing and the revelation of who Christ truly is. Spirituality is received by revelation. Those things of the Spirit have to be received by revelation. 
by listening to the Spirit, believing Him and obeying Him. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. As far-fetched as this seems, so totally different than the teaching of Revelation of anything I've ever read before or seen before, it has a truth to it and a kindness that represents the heart of God more than this wrath and the stuff that I've read about for a long time. There's something in it that allows me to connect right now and not just to look at the awfulness of what's still to come. This has such a reality to it. And it's something that I can connect with because, again, trying to study this and read commentaries and, you know, when I discovered this, it was just, I'm reading, it's just so fascinating to me, the perspective and, and how God is adding and letting me see from the teaching we've already experienced the truth of what I'm studying. Lord, we thank you tonight for bringing us this truth and I pray, Lord, that it would, you know, we would know, we, would, we could discern. If this is by the Spirit, that we would know it and we could accept it and let it form as truth in us. By grace, we could receive it and know, Lord, that it's truth coming from you. But if it, if it doesn't, if we can't, if the Holy Spirit doesn't bring this truth, I pray, Lord, that it would just be discarded. That each person here has that responsibility to, in the Spirit, listen and to be able to receive it as truth, not because I said it, I studied it because you reveal it. Let that be how we gain the truth. Let that be how we understand. Thank you, Lord, for this difference. Thank you for the perspective that you're giving and the truth that's being revealed in it. It's exciting for me. Never seen this before. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.